In July of 2021, Joe Biden had been president for more than half a year. But the last days of the Trump administration were still very much being reported on. The ways in which Trump had tried to overturn the 2020 election in a series of escalating maneuvers, which ultimately resulted, of course, in the attack on the U.S. Capitol. So it was during that summer, July of 2021, when The New Yorker published this explosive story. You're going to have an effing war. Mark Milley's fight to stop Trump from striking Iran. That very attention-grabbing headline was one of a series of reports published around that time detailing how Mark Milley, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff under Trump, how General Milley had spent the last days of the Trump presidency frantically trying to stop the president from starting a war to keep himself in office. For several months, Milley had been engaged in an alarmed effort to ensure that Trump did not embark on a military conflict with Iran as part of his quixotic campaign to overturn the results of the 2020 election and remain in power. The chairman secretly feared that Trump would insist on launching a strike on Iranian interests that could set off a full-blown war. So General Milley was worried that President Trump would use the pretext of a war with Iran to stay in power, which is, I guess, one way to do it. Now, that war obviously never came to pass. Instead, Trump pulled many other insane levers to stay in the White House. But this New Yorker story was a big deal. And that month, there were similar articles in The Washington Post and in other outlets. And Trump was apparently furious. The summer the New Yorker article came out, Trump was so publicly enraged by all of the reporting about General Milley and General Milley's campaign to stop Trump from starting this wacko war to stay in office that Trump even released a statement. If I was going to do a coup, one of the last people I would want to do it with is General Mark Milley. If I was going to do a coup. We now know that all that reporting about General Milley in the summer of 2021 really seemed to have gotten under Trump's skin. So much so that Trump's reaction to all of these articles may just be the smoking gun in the special counsel's Mar-a-Lago investigation. As we have reported here before, multiple news outlets, including NBC News, are now confirming that the special counsel's investigation has obtained an audio recording of Donald Trump from that summer, July 2021. In that recording, Trump is angry. He is angry about that article about Mark Milley, and he is reportedly doing everything he can in this recording to prove that he never wanted to attack Iran. Instead, Trump claims the person who really wanted to attack Iran— was, wait for it, General Mark Milley. And as evidence of that, Trump has on the tape, he says he has in his position, some sort of classified document showing Mark Milley's plan to attack Iran. On the recording and in response to the New Yorker story, Trump brings up the document, which he says came from Milley. Trump told those in the room that if he could show it to people, if he could show it to people, it would undermine what Milley was saying. So this classified document is of some real importance to Trump, but it's still classified. And Trump is aware in that moment, captured on tape, that he cannot show this classified document to anybody. And this is where things get really crazy. One source says on the tape Trump refers to the document as if it is in front of him. Several sources say the recording captures the sound of paper rustling as if Trump was waving the document around. 
though it is not clear if it was the actual Iran document. NBC News has not independently verified that specific part of the reporting. But if the reports about this audio recording are accurate, accurate, it may be the most damning evidence yet in the special counsel's documents investigation. Because this alleged recording tells us three really important things that we could have only guessed at before now. Number one, Donald Trump clearly knew he had classified documents in his possession after he left the White House. At the time of that recording, the National Archives had already repeatedly asked Trump to return all White House documents. The head of NARA had written and pleaded in an email to Trump's lawyer a few months prior that it was absolutely necessary that we obtain and account for all presidential records. But now here we have Trump on tape talking to strangers about classified documents that he says he has, making no mention of the fact that, oh, by the way, the federal government would would like them back. Please, Mr. President. Okay. Now, the second thing we learned from this recording is that Trump may well have been waving around those classified documents in front of people, which is not what you're supposed to do with classified documents. We don't know for sure exactly what Trump was rustling on that recording. It could have been a plan to attack Iran from the Joint Chiefs, or it could have been a random piece of paper that was used as a prop. We just don't know. But either way, Trump seems very comfortable talking about these documents, maybe even waving them around in front of a group of people who do not have the proper security clearance. And finally, the third thing we learned from this recording is that Trump knew that the document in his possession was still classified. On the recording, Trump clearly understood that he could not show this document to the people in the room with him because he knew that he had actually not declassified that document as president. All of this matters. A lot. Throughout the entire Mar-a-Lago saga, Trump and his lawyers have tried out several lines of defense. First, they claimed Trump did not know he had any of these government documents. Trump's lawyers wrote in a letter to Congress that White House employees quickly packed everything into boxes and shipped them to Florida. White House employees. They claimed Trump had no idea what was in those boxes. Second, Trump's lawyers claimed Trump kept all these documents in a secure place. Trump's lawyers said that all the classified materials were being kept at President Trump's heavily secured home at Mar-a-Lago. And finally, Trump claimed that none of this mattered anyway because Trump declassified everything before leaving office. You had said on Truth Social a number of times you did declassify. I did declassify, yes. Okay. Is there a process? What was your process to declassify? It doesn't have to be a process, as I understand it. You know, there's different people say different things. But as I understand, there doesn't have to be. If you're the president of the United States, you can declassify just by saying um, it's declassified, even by thinking about it. You can. They said he didn't know the documents were classified, that he kept them in a secure location and that he had already declassified them anyway. But he knew he had classified documents. He wasn't keeping them in a secure location. And he knew he hadn't declassified them as president. And it's all on tape, in his own voice, with rustling paper. Joining us now is Tali Farhadian-Weinstein, a former federal prosecutor at the DOJ. Also with us is Carol Lenning, national investigative reporter for The Washington Post. Carol, if I may, just start with you, given your firsthand experience interviewing President Trump, also for a book, which is whence, from whence some of the, this tape comes. 
Uh, my, my question is, do you have tapes uh, from chats with the president? And do you know if the special counsel wants those tapes or has those tapes? Uh, I will just say, uh, yes, we do have tapes of the recordings that Phil Rucker, my colleague, and I made of our interview with Donald Trump for our book, which came out at precisely this time uh, in July of 2021, when the president, the former president, was complaining about Mark Milley. Um, And I will say that it was the pattern and practice of former President Donald Trump to also tape record any media people that were coming to visit him. He wanted basically a record of what those conversations were just to sort of fact check and make sure nothing was taken out of context that he said. And the irony here is that researchers who sat down with him for Mark Meadows' book um, have the president, the former president's own words in which, you know, they didn't misquote him and they have evidence. And now also we know Trump's aide, Margot also has the recording and evidence in which he describes his awareness of this classified material, that it was classified, that he shouldn't show it, that there were special requirements, unlike uh, the things he has said since he was under investigation for withholding some of these documents and obstructing a criminal investigation. Given given that this is something he did, Carol, right? It was something that a lot of the conversations were recorded. Trump had to have known somewhere in his reptilian brain, like the deep brain, that there existed recordings of him saying these things that are exactly counter to the defense he started to mount in the Mar-a-Lago documents investigation. No? I think it's important to remember the pattern of Donald Trump when he was president and since. You know, I'll just give you an example. In in Phil's and my interview with Donald Trump in the spring of 2021, he described really an alternate reality that did not comport with what he had previously said in other settings about what happened on January 6th or what happened in the election. Uh, he said things to us that that didn't really relate to what he experienced in real time. There was a huge disconnect. And so I think it's important to remember that Donald Trump often is of the view that he is the best communicator for his PR crisis at that moment. He's excellent in his view at uh, seizing the microphone and explaining his point of view, but it doesn't necessarily have to be consistent mm. with what he said, you know, a week ago or a year ago. It's really to seize the moment and to make sure he makes the most of that particular crisis. I'm not sure he probably remembers this this exchange in which he said, you know, I could really get Millie, I could get General Millie if I could show you these documents that conflict with his his alleged claim that I wanted to, you know, or was planning to attack Iran. And forgive me, Alex, a, a moment for a second. The irony, the second irony here, in addition to Donald Trump not being consistent, insisting on recording something that actually now ensnares him, the other irony here is, it's my understanding from sources that we spoke with over the last 48 hours that Mark Milley did not produce a document, a memo to Donald Trump in which he recommended invading or attacking (laughs) Iran. And so... 
Really, Donald Trump, if if he was shaking around a classified document, as he alleged in this recording, it was a Pentagon document that Milley probably recommended against a <laughs> one of the many options of of things that could be done with a foreign adversary that the Pentagon had sort of war gamed out. Uh, and again, Donald Trump is thinking, how am I going to get this this general, this chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, who appears to be sharing, you know, his worries about the end of my presidency. How am I going to get him? And the reporting we have to date is that he was going to suggest he had a document saying the general wanted to invade the country when we have information that that's not the case. So it's it's sort of a double whammy irony. Like on the one hand, record everything, Donald Trump, so that you can catch reporters misdescribing you, now it catches you saying something about classified records and your knowledge that they require special protection. And then the second is, of course, I'm going to get General Milley, uh, Donald Trump says, but he's going to be flashing around a document that he's misdescribing Yeah, because my understanding is General Milley did not recommend attacking Iran. Layers of irony here, Tali. And I guess the question from a prosecutorial level is how meaningful, I mean, there's the legal Mm. part of this and then the public opinion part of this. Talk to me about legally the, the importance of having these statements on tape. Yeah, so this is blockbuster evidence, Alex, uh, legally speaking. And it's not direct evidence of the crimes that we have been anticipating that he will be charged with, which is having the classified documents at Mar-a-Lago. This obviously happened in a different setting at a different time. But it's what we call other acts evidence or Rule 404B evidence that comes in to support those charges and tells us three things. It tells us his intent, that he knew how classification works, what he was not supposed to have and that he was holding on to it. His motives, I mean, that's hung over the documents case. Like, why did he have this stuff? And now we have an answer that I think would be meaningful to a jury, which is personal vendetta, ego. He was wounded by these stories about Millie, and he thought he could use documents like this to help himself maybe legacy build. And depending on what comes out, We might learn something about his M.O. of how he managed to get documents into his hands that he shouldn't have had, all of which can shed light on and support the Mar-a-Lago charges. And everything I've said is true, even if it's all a ruse, if he was waving around a blank blank piece piece of of paper paper or something written by somebody else or something that was not even classified in the first place. Prosecutors can still do all of the work that I've just described. Do you think, I mean... As as far as charges and building a case, which is I mean, is it a bigger deal in this instant? Does it in terms of the charges it supports or in however tertiary or secondary way, the fact that he was knew the documents weren't classified and was in possession of them in theory or that he was waving them around and potentially showing them ready to show them to other people? Well, both. And the latter, the waving them and showing them around to other people is really important for the Espionage Act. So remember the search warrant for the documents at Mar-a-Lago listed a bunch of different statutes, which doesn't have to be the whole universe. They could bring charges other than the ones that they've listed. But that's a statute that predates the whole classification system. So those technicalities don't even matter. That criminalizes taking, without authorization, documents related to national security, which 
could be useful to the enemy or which could hurt the United States. And the the showing and the carelessness and the content of these documents sort of tells us that this is something that he would be willing to do. So we might see charges related to Bedminster, too. But even if we don't, this is very useful in an Espionage Act case for Mar-a-Lago. Right. Which is not something we've been talking mostly about obstruction as it pertains to Mar-a-Lago, not so much the Espionage Act. Um, Carol, I know The Washington Post has done some important, so important that we've bookmarked it on our browser reporting about Trump's motivation uh, for holding on to these documents. And I wonder how you think this creates a, a more vivid picture of that motivation and whether and the, the degree to which this could really just be, as Tali says, ego. So, you know, I'm glad you asked, and I couldn't agree more with Tali about the importance of the motive in terms of telling the story. You know, I've interviewed enough prosecutors to know that the most important thing to them when they go to trial is, how do we tell the story of what this, how do we connect all these dots and make it make sense to our jurors? And, you know, there is a legal piece here and there is a political and public opinion piece here. So let's deal with the legal first. It, it's it's critical, and we have been reporting at the Post for now, I think, nine months, that prosecutors did not have evidence to suggest at least months and months ago, did not have any hard evidence to suggest Donald Trump took these documents to, quote unquote, make money, make bank on this material, but that it was really about like, these are mine. I'm really still the president. I I have things to brag about and boast about, and I hold on to these. We know that prosecutors have continued to investigate under Jack Smith ever since the special counsel was appointed in November of last year. Prosecutors have continued to seek information about the possibility that donors were encouraged or or allured by the flashing of these documents, that essentially Donald Trump's boasting of what he had was used to curry some favor with donors and to bring the money in that way. We don't know that prosecutors have found evidence of that. But in this case, at least we know this much. There is a slightly petty, personal, and venal motive for Donald Trump in this setting, in which he really just wants to settle a score against a very senior Pentagon official who worried about the final final weeks of the presidency and what Donald Trump might pull to stay in power, including a kind of wag the dog war. That was a major fear of General uh, General Milley's and one we reported on in our book in July of 2021. And I think a jury, upon seeing that information, Alex, is going to be very concerned about why somebody would would have such a small motive in flashing around material that would be valuable to an adversary, that would be dangerous to get into the wrong hands, that would would cause grave danger to Americans' security. Uh, This is the trade-off that they're being presented with in this future trial that, you know, the three of us are envisioning. Well, presumably these are not the only tapes that Jack Smith has. Um, There's so much more to talk about. We have to leave it there. Tali Farhadi and Weinstein and Carol Lennig. It is so great to hear from you both. Thanks for joining me tonight. So that was new bombshell reporting on special counsel Jack Smith's Mar-a-Lago investigation. And when we come back, we will dig into the fresh reporting on the special counsel's other big investigation into Trump's role in January 6th. 
That's just ahead. Stick around. There comes a point when the right to vote requires a fight to vote. MSNBC Films presents Battleground Georgia, a story that explores the ugly history of voter suppression and how Georgia is leading the charge against it. Something has to change. The old South is being replaced by the new South. Battleground Georgia, part of the Turning Point documentary series from executive producer Trevor Noah. Sunday at 9 p.m. Eastern on MSNBC. Hi, I'm Jonathan Capehart, and I'm excited to share some great news. Both The Saturday Show and The Sunday Show are available as a podcast. Every weekend, I look forward to bringing you the most important political news and the newsmakers who are creating policies that affect your life. For me, it's all about the conversation. That's when news is revealed and understanding begins. Search for Saturdays and Sundays with Jonathan Capehart and follow. Do you remember the conservatives-only dating app called The Right Stuff? Maybe you don't, but it was the dating app that had people like vigilante-slash-conservative hero Kyle Rittenhouse as a spokesperson. The app had prompts for your dating profile, like January 6th was dot-dot-dot-fill-in-the-blank. The app was basically a litmus test, so you would only get set up with people that had the same views at you, views as you. And it was the brainchild of someone named John McEntee, who was President Trump's former director of the Presidential Personnel Office. But this app wasn't McEntee's first rodeo when it came to the bizarre act of litmus testing people's conservatism. Towards the end of the Trump administration, McEntee was on a mission to find and fire employees who were seen as disloyal to President Trump. Employees applying for political appointments within the Trump administration had to fill out a questionnaire with questions like, what part of candidate Trump's campaign message most appealed to you and why? This is not the usual process for vetting White House job applicants. And now the New York Times reports that special counsel Jack Smith is looking into these loyalty tests as part of his investigation into Trump's efforts to overturn the 2020 election. In particular, Smith is interested in the firing of the Trump administration's top cybersecurity official, a man named Chris Krebs. Smith has gone so far as to subpoena the White House staffers he believes were involved in Krebs's firing. Now, that firing was very public when it happened. Five days after the 2020 election was called for Biden, Krebs's Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, known as CISA, it put out this remarkable statement about the election. In it, Krebs assured the public in a line that was bolded for emphasis that there was no evidence that any voting system deleted or lost votes, changed votes, or was in any way compromised. That statement was a big deal because at the time, Trump was insisting that the election had been stolen and his lawsuits were popping up all over the country. And here was his administration's agency, the one that oversaw elections and cybersecurity, saying out loud, we can assure you, we have the utmost confidence in the security and the integrity of our elections. That statement incensed President Trump. And days later, he fired Chris Krebs by tweet, because that's how Trump fired people. Now, the New York Times is reporting that Jack Smith's office is interested in all of that. They want to know how McEntee's personal office interacted with the government, including the Department of Justice, in the period between Trump losing the election and January 6th. 
The Times reports a special counsel appears to be focused on Trump's state of mind during that period. It is likely that the special counsel wants to know the degree to which Trump himself knew that the election was not stolen while he continued to promote the big lie to his supporters and to the American public. And how Trump took action to remove any officials who were getting in the way of that narrative by telling the truth. Joining us now is Tim Hafey, who served as the lead investigator for the January 6th committee. Mr. Hafey, it is great to meet you uh, distantly and get your thoughts on this. First off, in terms of what the special counsel is after in, in, in looking at the firing of Chris Krebs, do you think we're reading this accurately, that this is a bid to just try and understand what Trump was trying to do to the truth tellers in his administration? Yes. I think this is Jack Smith anticipating a potential defense that the president may put forth, which is reliance on counsel. Or I had lots of people telling me that there were problems with the election, and that is what motivated my actions. That is an unreasonable belief. And as the select committee found, there were far more voices and more credible voices explaining directly to the president that there was no evidence of widespread election fraud. As Chris Krebs said in that statement, no evidence that any voting machines were compromised in any way. So to the extent that the special counsel can lay a foundation that there were truth tellers surrounding the president, telling him again and again, truthfully, that there was no such evidence, it makes his reliance on other voices less and less reasonable. And that's why it's directly relevant to a potential criminal prosecution of the former president. And do you see um, Special Counsel Smith's interest in the loyalty test that was given to potential employees an extension of that line of inquiry? Yes. Look, what happened to Chris Krebs is not uncommon. Toward the end of the administration, as your reporting just you know, suggests correctly, uh, there were a lot of people that drew the ire of the president for telling the truth, right? Bill Barr is another example. And then it became Jeff Rosen and other officials at the Department of Justice by, again, truthfully saying, hey, Mr. President, we've looked at this and there's just no evidence to support the incendiary things that you're saying publicly about the election. And they either lost their jobs or almost lost their jobs. And that all, his attempt to replace people that were doing the right thing with people that were willing, without a basis in fact or law, to say other things, to facilitate this multi-part plan to disrupt the joint session. That is why the special counsel is asking about the loyalty test and all of these personnel changes. Yeah, the, the Times reports also that the special counsel is in particular looking at what Mr. Trump did, President Trump did, in and around the Justice Department and trying to install Trump loyalists there. Can you flesh out for me why, in particular, the Department of Justice? Was that just seen as the most convenient lever with which to stay in power? I mean, the Justice Department is where some of these very same allegations that the president was repeating publicly actually were investigated, right? Bill Barr on November the 9th sent a memo to all U.S. attorneys and all FBI field offices saying you should go forth and investigate credible allegations of voter fraud. It's important for Americans to have confidence in the outcome of the election. And that's what happened. A lot of these theories, the, the suitcases of ballots in Georgia, dead people voting you know, in Pennsylvania or Michigan, the Justice Department looked into this uh, so the president, when he heard Bill Barr and others say, sir, again, with all due respect, what you're saying publicly uh, is, is not accurate. We have looked at this. 
That is what prompted the discussion about personnel change. And that, again, informs what the president knew. The special counsel's entire focus is on proving state of mind and rebutting some potential argument that the president relied upon the advice of those who said there's a basis for his his actions or or are his statements. Uh, And that's why Chris Krebs, that's why Jeff Rosen and Rich Donahue and Bill Barr and all of the people who told him no are so important. You know, as we talk about the falsehoods that were spread in and around uh, the election, I think it's important to note how much that that misinformation has seeped into the groundwater. Today, uh, Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene claimed that honeypots may have been used to entrap January 6th participants. As someone who worked so diligently on this investigation, what is your reaction to that? It's uh, patently absurd. There's absolutely no evidence of any such, uh, of anything. Again, it's grasping for straws. People who were there on January 6th were there because they were fed lies by the former president that the election had been stolen. They were lies because credible people like Chris Krebs consistently told him that there was no foundation for that. That makes his actions criminal. That makes informs the intent behind all of the multi-part political steps that he took in advance of the election, his incendiary words on January 6th, and then his inaction during the riot, all informs uh, a showing, an evidentiary showing, that he intended for that riot to succeed and for that joint session to be disrupted. Tim Hafey, thank you so much for making the time tonight. Really appreciate it. Still to to come this evening, as Florida Governor Ron DeSantis continues his presidential campaign through early states, people back home are protesting a law he signed, the most extreme anti-immigration legislation in the country. What it does and how people are fighting back today, right now. That's coming up next. Stay up to date on the biggest issues of the day with the MSNBC Daily Newsletter. Each morning, you'll get analysis by experts you trust, video highlights from your favorite shows. 2024 is now truly the most important election in the history of our country. Previews of our podcasts and documentaries, plus written perspectives from the newsmakers themselves, all sent directly to your inbox each morning. Get the best of MSNBC all in one place. Sign up for MSNBC Daily at MSNBC.com. It's Monday night. It's Monday, everyone. Happy to have you here on this Monday night. Lots of news to get to tonight. Make more of your Mondays on MSNBC with Jen Psaki and Rachel Maddow back to back. If you were talking to a voter, what would you say to them about why this case matters to them? Was this the kind of proceeding you would expect in a typical New York DA's case, or does this really feel different? Inside with Jen Psaki at 8 p.m. Eastern, followed by The Rachel Maddow Show at 9, Mondays on MSNBC. Monday night. Something happened last month that you may not have read about all that much if you lived outside the state of Florida. Governor Ron DeSantis signed Florida's Senate Bill 1718, which is the most extreme immigration legislation in the country, which is saying something given the Republican Party's position on immigration these days. The bill will make giving someone you know is undocumented a ride into the state. It will make that punishable by up to 15 years in prison. Now, this vaguely written section of the law could apply to mixed status households, which means that children who were born here in the U.S. to undocumented parents might not be allowed to give their parents a ride if it means crossing state lines. 
The law also invalidates out-of-state driver's licenses given to undocumented immigrants. And Florida is, of course, a tourist state. Nearly 140 million people visited last year. That means people visiting from New York or California, where undocumented immigrants are allowed to have driver's licenses, they will no longer have their licenses recognized in the state of Florida. The law requires more businesses to use E-Verify. That's a federal online database that employers use to confirm a worker's employment eligibility. That requirement could prevent scared migrants from taking certain jobs, which could worsen the state's already existing labor shortage. It also gives Governor DeSantis $12 million to continue to ship migrants out of Florida, an exercise in cruelty that last saw 50 migrants shipped unknowingly, in some cases, to Martha's Vineyard without any resources once they arrived. And it will require hospitals, including emergency rooms, to collect data about patients' immigration status. Which means that if you are hurt or you're sick or in need of emergency care, before you're given the stitches or an x-ray, you will be asked about your citizenship. In many cases, advocates say scared migrants may not even seek medical help for fear of being deported. Now, all of this will go into effect one month from today, on July 1st. But the fear and the anxiety this is causing is happening right now. And so migrants are fighting back. Today, hundreds of migrants all over Florida protested the bill under the banner, A Day Without Immigrants. We saw gatherings in Orlando and Miami, Fort Myers, West Palm Beach, Tampa, and Jacksonville. The demonstrations were planned in conjunction with labor strikes and the closure of dozens of Hispanic-owned businesses in support of these undocumented migrants. The hope here is that with enough outcry, Governor DeSantis will be forced to reconsider this. Organizers also planned peaceful gatherings in California, Colorado, Illinois, Minnesota, South Carolina, and Texas, and even in Mexico. They all want DeSantis to know that they are fighting this together. If freedom is only for a selected few, it's no longer America. We will always fight back. We're here with all our brothers and sisters in solidarity to support all the immigrants in the state of Florida. Our communities are being victimized. By, by racist politicians masquerading as defenders of democracy. We are sick and tired of it, and we're not going to take it anymore. And that's why all these people are here. We will have more on that fight ahead with one of the lawmakers who is at the very center of that fight. Stay with us. That was some of the public outcry in Florida today against one of the most extraordinarily punitive and restrictive immigration bills in the country, a bill that was signed by Governor Ron DeSantis last month that criminalizes the transportation of undocumented immigrants and requires hospitals to check the immigration status of patients, among other things. The bill goes into effect a month from today, but migrants in Florida are not waiting. Today, many of them gathered outside the office of local Republican legislators to pressure them and Governor DeSantis to repeal this law. There were also peaceful protests in at least seven Florida cities as part of a day of demonstrations called A Day Without Immigrants. Joining me now is Florida State Representative Anna Eskimani. Representative Eskimani, thanks as always for being here tonight. Um, I, my first question is just do you think th these protests we've seen, there's a lot of passion here. 
Do you think they are moving any Republican legislators to rethink their position on this? Well, thanks so much for having me. And as a daughter of immigrants myself, I know, Alex, your mom is an immigrant. These issues are incredibly important to us and they're personal. And we made that point all through this fight on the House floor against this bill. But the reality is that many Floridians just don't realize it even happened until after the bill was passed. And that's because Governor DeSantis is on a chaos tour. He pushed many bad bills this session, dividing and conquering, if you will, resources, and the ability to get out information to the public. So as more and more Floridians learn about this policy, whether they're business owners, whether they are immigrants themselves, the backlash is being felt. And so my hope is that for Republicans who didn't feel the heat before, now they do. And they'll understand why this bill should be repealed and going into next legislative session and then the campaign season, they'll have a much better perspective on why these policies are dangerous for Florida and why so many people oppose them. Yeah, I mean, the cruelty piece doesn't ever seem to move Governor DeSantis, but the economic argument against this law seems to be pretty strong. I mean, the, there's the piece where, you know, if you are an undocumented visitor to Florida, your driver's license is no longer valid in the state. That will affect the tourism industry. There's the basic labor imp- imp- implication here in terms of my Migrants being afraid to show up for work or not applying for the jobs to begin with. I mean, do you think Republicans just didn't calculate that? And how much does Disney and the debacle that has been for the state of the Florida of Florida factor into the decision over how much economic pain they can take? I mean, I made this point when it came to Disney, how our governor is a job killing moron. And this is more of the same. I mean, let's look at the facts. One in four of Florida's uh, two million frontline workers are, are immigrants. And as you mentioned, this includes industries that are essential to our economy, whether it's child and, and social services, public transportation, trucking, warehouses, uh, retail, of course, construction, agriculture. And agriculture in particular is one of our largest industries in Florida, generating over $7 billion in state revenue each year. These are also areas of work that citizens typically don't want to do. And so we need to emphasize the economic consequences of this policy. And that was part of the goal of today was to encourage not only our workers to stay home, but our businesses to shut down and for consumers not to shop. We need to show that economic pain and how this really is not just a a commitment to the American dream of of democracy and, and welcoming the immigrant, but of course, also highlighting the essential role that immigrants play in Florida's economy. Do you think the protests continue up until July 1st? Can you tell us any more about plans here? Yes, absolutely. Not only will the protests continue, but we're on the ground hosting educational seminars. We want to make sure that those impacted know their rights, especially when it comes to this invasive collection of data in hospitals. This is voluntary, but we are concerned that due to language barriers and just complete fear of the notion of deportation, that our immigrant community members, especially mixed families, will not seek medical care. So we're ensuring that everyone knows their rights, that we have lawyers ready. And of course, we'll continue to organize on the ground 
push back and build coalitions. Many members of the faith community are opposed this bill alongside the business community. And we need every ally at this time, especially in Florida, as Governor DeSantis continues his bid for the Republican primary. Yeah, the intersectionality on just recognizing each other's humanity seems pretty profound. Florida State Representative Anna Eskamani, as always, thanks for your time. Thank you. Coming up, the Senate is racing the clock to pass a debt limit deal before the U.S. government defaults on its bills. We're going to bring you the latest just ahead. Right now, the Senate is working late, pushing toward a final passage of the bill raising the U.S. debt limit. The bill passed by the House last night with a major assist from Democrats. As it stands, the main sticking point right now is that a handful of senators are forcing the chamber to vote on amendments to this bill. There are 11 total. And if any of them pass, the whole bill has to go back to the House. And that would almost certainly push the U.S. government past the point of default. So far, seven of these amendments have failed. Joining us now is Ali Vitali, NBC News Capitol Hill correspondent. Ali, this bill seems poised to pass the Senate tonight, right? Yeah, that is the expectation. And you're right that if any of these amendments were to pass, that would be a pretty big deal and a bad thing because no one anticipates that any of these amendments are going to pass. If they did, it would mean that this bill would have to go from the Senate back to the House, and then we would be in a state where everybody is surprised and we're likely defaulting on our debt. What's happening now, though, is the Senate's way of going slow in the short term to go faster in the long term. This is an agreement that was made by all 100 senators to do these amendment votes, and then finally, maybe 30 to 40 minutes from now is our expectation, vote on the fiscal, uh, on the debt deal that they have uh, in front of them. That's probably going to be at around 11. And look, I know it doesn't look like it's happening very fast, but this is pretty fast by Senate standards. You know, 10 minutes per each of these amendment votes, and we've got Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer chiding his colleagues when they go over 10 minutes and urging them to stay on the floor so this can get done as quickly as possible. This is, again, the Senate coming in days ahead of deadline after the House haggled over this debt deal for weeks between Speaker McCarthy and the White House. I do think the thing that's striking about it, and you and I have watched so many of these late-night Senate procedural hurdles is the fact that this one is sort of being done half-heartedly. Most of the Republican senators who were agitating for amendment votes were doing it knowing that A, their amendments were going to fail, and B, the fact that this debt deal was going to pass anyway. So even though we're doing this the long way, it's still being done in the shortest way possible, and it's almost done in a half-hearted fashion because everybody here expects that this bill by the end of the night is going to be passed and on the way to the president's desk. Yeah, and a rare moment of bipartisanship when Chuck Schumer and Mitch McConnell want their uh, their their people to do the same thing, which That's is simmer exactly down right. and go vote quick. Ali Vitali, <laughs> burning the midnight oil with the rest of the Senate. NBC News Capitol Hill correspondent. Thank you, Ali, for your time and wisdom. That is our show for tonight. We will see you again tomorrow. 